Today we have got an incredible special guest, a gentleman who I've known for a long time and I heard him play many, many years ago and was just blown away by just his sound, his pocket, the depth of his ability to step inside the music with Stevie Ray Vaughan when I heard him. So we're going to introduce now Chris Whipper Layton, unbelievable. His love for music and drumming started as a young kid. He's best known for his years with the legendary Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. He's also played with Archangels, Buddy Guy, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, who I absolutely love, Storyville, and has been also on the Experience Hendrix tour every year that the Jimi Hendrix estate puts it on the road. So everybody, please welcome Mr. Chris Layton. Hey, Tom. Yes. Chris, thanks so much for joining me, man. This is so exciting to have this time with you here. I've been a huge fan for years, and it's just so great to have this time again that Vader brings together drummers all around the world, and this is great to have your time. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you again, too. Good Absolutely, to man. It's been a long time. I've got a little bit more gray in here. Chris, in well, case you know, you're... I think I would be that, too, if I was going to grow my, my face hair out, you know. So. <laughs> well, you're smart to shave, that's for sure. You know, I've got to go back. In, in the early days, man, I, and I think, I think it was really kind of exciting, too, with myself, too. There were certain artists that we heard when we were young kids that totally influenced us and just kind of sparked us to get involved with playing. What was it like for you as a kid? What's what's really sparked you to get you involved in playing? Yeah, it was a, it was one of those. It was a moment, and it, it was actually hearing. It was strange because I heard music, yeah, you know, quite a bit. But one day, uh, my my sisters brought home the uh, the Chubby Checker Twist album, yeah. Twist again, and when they played the Twist, it was just the intro to the song did something to me, and I wanted to start beating on things. I was. And I don't know what that's really about because I'd heard all kinds of things. It just was that moment where something happened, and I wanted to. I went out. To, I went out to the side yard. I cut off a couple of uh, limbs and kind of and whittled on them, and then started beating on the couch and coffee cans and pots and pans. And you know, I guess you could say the rest is kind of history. <laughs> it, it sure is. It sure is history. So. Were you, at that point, did you get a drum set? Were you listening to other music? Did you start to get more involved? Well, you know, it wasn't long after that that I heard the Jimi Hendrix experience. Hmm. And so it was Mitch Mitchell, well, yeah, but when, that, when that happened, right at that point in time, the, the twigs that are these branches that I had were oleanders, which were very poisonous, and I'd been whittling on them, and my mother asked me about it, and she got all freaked out and got all upset and, my, my father had me throw, this, throw those sticks away, asked my mother if she could calm down a little bit. And then he went and got this whole set of 78s that had Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Glenn Miller, Harry James, the Chick Webb, Chick Webb Orchestra. And we sat for several hours and he played nothing but all these big band recordings. And I was like, wow, what is this music? And what, you know, where, where did this come from? Because he had all this stuff locked away up until yeah. that point. I don't know what that was about, but so he played that. He went and got some brushes out of that same closet and sat in front of the Ottoman and he played brushes along with this stuff. And I, it was then that I found out that he had been a drummer in the army air force in, in the European theater during the war. And he was an airplane mechanic because his eyesight was too bad to see, you know, active ser uh, duty service. Right. Um, and so he did that and he played in the, in the jazz band in the non-commissioned officers club at night 
I never, I never knew any of this until right at that moment. Um, so he played all this music for me. And then when I heard Hendrix, I thought that drummer sounds a lot like those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I heard, Hey Joe. And I go, it was just something stylistically. And I got real intrigued by it cause it was nothing like any of that. And then kind of, I was just kind of off at that point. I was like, you know, um, I didn't get a, I didn't get any drums until a little bit later. I joined the school band a couple of, you know, a few years later, sixth grade is when it was. And I got a snare drum, but I went around and found people who had drum sets and played on their drum kits and, my parents were kind of hardcore about that. It's like, if you want something, you'll still want it later. Yeah. <laughs> but what a, great, what a great way to test your passion and your desire. Well, yeah, no, because when I started the school band, the band director had this thing going where he was actually selling the students their instruments. And I, I, they said, if you're, if you're going to play in the band, you have to buy this, the Ludwig kit. Remember the little Ludwig the Ludwig kit had the rubber pad, the Billy Gladstone pad, and the yes. you know that whole kit. And they were like $155. And they really, I mean, he actually, he had tacked on money on top of what they actually cost. And then my dad, who was a businessman, good businessman, said, no, I don't think that's what the deal is. And so he, he said, we're going to get him his own drum. And he bought me a Lyra, a Lyra, the, the, the 2995 drum. I had the worst yeah. drum in the school. And he said, yeah, he goes, that'll be good enough. He goes, you want to play, you'll play that drum. Yeah, so that's, kind of, that's how I started. <laughs> so you played it, you're getting involved. Were you taking any lessons in school? Were, were they kind of teaching you certain things? No, you know what? It was just, it was, it was Sousa. You know, you had the sheet music and we played all the different marches and the different things that you, I learned to read while I was in, in school. Uh, and that was really it. Um, my lesson my lessons were a couple of guys that were in the, lived in my area that played drum kit and they were older and I went and watched them play drum sets. And meanwhile, I was going to school and learning how to play marches and, um, you know, things for concert band and whatnot, you know, at the level that we were at. Yeah. Yeah. So were there, was there a jazz influence that was happening from having the, you know, plays that you were listening to was jazz a, a major part of what you were listening to? Not at that point. The other thing was all those the, the big band stuff. Yeah. Um, but then it was just the popular music of the day. You know, we're talking at this point in time, it's like 1965 to 1970. Right. And you're listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix. And uh, there was so much new stuff that was coming on the radio, which then you, people, my sisters were actually considerably older. So they went off and bought all these records. And I was kind of along for the ride. So yeah. I'll listen to all that and play along with it and then, you know, scout around the neighborhood and find people that were doing something and watch them. And can I play your drum kit? You know, until, <laughs> yeah. So let's say someone like Mitch Mitchell and these players, you were kind of being exposed to some, and even this big band stuff, some very different type of drumming. It wasn't just rock, pop, radio stuff. You were getting a wider sense of influence. Well, yeah, you know, and when I was in, when I got into high school and early, uh, which at that time was ninth grade, I had a, a friend of mine who was a football player came along and he said, hey, man, you ever heard of this guy, Herbie Hancock? And I <laughs> said, no, I don't have any idea who that is. And he had all, he's had records, he had the Headhunters. And and I said, whoa, okay. you know, so I, I started getting exposed to, to, I got exposed to Herbie Hancock through this football player. And then I started meeting some people because of my playing that um, had all these other different records. And then I started finding out what was going on. I started getting my own music and 
um, you know, that was kind of you kind of this was just that 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 search. You know, you're always looking around, seeing what's going on, who has what, and you know where that might lead you. So that took me all kinds of places to Billy Cobham and to you know Dreams and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Stanley Turrentine, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Miles wow. Davis, John Coltrane, you know more Herbie Hancock and all that stuff. By the time I was like you know in my later years in high school, so it wasn't like you were you were playing blues you were really kind of playing contemporary and jazz and listening to others you know blues wasn't a core of who you were at that time then right oh no not at all in fact i'd never actually played blues until i started playing with stevie that, that's absolutely and, amazing well there's a story about that and it's, it's funny this is a story that i only heard like three years ago um i was I was living in an apartment in Austin. I had moved to Austin. So fast forward, not to get chron stay chronological. And my roommate, Joseph Blatt, and Stevie Vaughn were in a band together. And one night I went out to go see the band, and the drummer was uh, late because he overslept, had a day job. And my roommate convinced them to let me get up there. And so I played four songs with the band before the drummer showed up. A couple of days later, Stevie came over to the apartment, and that's when I met him. He walked right up on me playing uh, playing along to the Donny Hathaway uh, live record. But, but what I didn't know, the story that I found out three years ago, is that before he came in, he pulled my friend Joe out and said, hey, he goes, has he ever played blues? And Joe said, no, you know what, man? He's never played blues. And Stevie said, that's good. <laughs> I he said, why is that good? He said, because he doesn't have a bunch of strange concepts in his head about how something's supposed to be or not supposed to be. He goes, that's great. And then it wasn't long after that that he asked me to start to play with him. So, so this was this was in Austin. So it was after high school that you moved to Austin. Yeah, yeah. I went to. I ended up going to a, a year of music school at Del Mar College. Right. Um, and I, after a year, it was a year, and I started a second year there. And then I did just it came to me. I thought I need to leave Corpus. I, I and I had been to Austin before. And loved it, so I moved to Austin, Texas, and you know, a couple of years later, I met Stevie. So at this point, now you, you meet Stevie. You 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 you're in Austin. When you moved to Austin, I mean, you had to start networking, meeting people, and it was probably just were you getting out and going to clubs? Were you just checking out bands? How, how were you networking? Uh, you know what, going to clubs, going to clubs all the time. So, yeah. I, I mean, I was actually a music fan. I, mean, I went, there were so many different kinds of bands in Austin. And there was so much music that it was just like a, a, a delight to go see all these different players playing all over town. But then I met people. I met, you know, I met somebody and I got a, they said, hey, we need a drummer. I played with a guy named Dan Del Santo. He was from Poughkeepsie originally. Huh. Dan Del Santo and the Professors of Pleasure, which was all like jazz type, funky, reggae, it's world beat type of stuff. Everything was all original. So that was like going straight to a band that like we we write all the material and that's what we do. Um, I went from there to a band called Greasy Wheels, which was actually a, a major label artist, part of the the, the progressive country um, thing that was the movement that was going on in in Texas at that time, and that kind of led to uh, you know me having actually a real gig, right, a steady gig, and then I met Stevie and. I quit that band for us to start the adventure known as Double Trouble. So, what was the plan with Stevie? I mean, did, did you did you did he 
say I'm putting this band together. I want to go out on the road. Did he have? I, mean, I think he had already had a a deal before, right? Did he have any kind of deal? No, you know what, Dom? There was there was no plan. <laughs> you know what? You know what, Dom? You know we were. I actually, I when I heard him play and played with him that night with the with Paul Ray and the covers, I thought this guy's absolutely enchanting. Something about him is just fascinating, and. I, I wanted I wanted to work with him. I mean, the job that I had uh, with, with Greasy Wheels that was actually a three hundred fifty dollar a week job. I got a paycheck on Friday, and I gave that up to step off into where are we going or what are we going to do? And then there was nothing. There was no plan. It was like we make it up from here on out. And Double Trouble had actually just a, a, been a band that was just kind of forming. Um, the short of it was is that they asked me to play in the band. And then we were kind of often trying to figure out where are we going to work and who's going to who's going to give us this work and yeah. you know the whole thing. And there was zero of a plan other than we like each other and we're going forward is the idea. Where does where does the depth of that feeling? Where, where do you find that kind of a commitment? Where you've got this somewhat of a secure paycheck coming in, but something you know you, you meet Stevie and you feel something that you just know something's bigger there. Where does that feeling come from? Where does that courage come from to make that decision? You know, that's a good, that's a really, really great question. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, and in my case, I'll just speak for myself is that I know it when I feel it. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that gives some type of intangible, but known feeling that you go, you know, I know I'm going that this is the right direction. Yeah. How are we how are we going to do it, and when are we going to do it, and what are the parts to doing it, and all this other stuff. You and that the courage, though, to me, is built on this idea of like a faith and a trust that mm. that you get from that feeling that says it's like being an explorer. It's like we're going to go west. We're going. How are we going to go west, and how far are we going to go west? Are we going to make left and right turns, or are there going to be mountains, or you know, I, we don't know any. We don't really know any of that stuff, but we know that we need to go that way. Yeah. You know. And that's all there, there really was to it. Boy, there's a certain lesson in being able to trust our instinct that is exactly what you're saying. You just trusted your instinct, zero, zero guarantee of anything. But the trusting of your instinct really is an incredible tool. You know, a lot of people, they don't do that. That's true. I think that we all have that. And it's something that I feel lucky that that it real keep points in my life I've actually when that's hit me I've actually paid attention to it and followed it because um, I think that that happens we go no no that's uh, there's something more certain and I can see it right here so I should just stay right here yeah you know and whatever that means for them so you, you're starting to re rehearse with the band did, did you go into deep rehearsals were you guys starting to play a lot just <laughs> we should start it's like here you go we got we have a, we have a gig this week let's let's go <laughs> I mean, we did a little play, but really, I mean, everything, the funny thing about Double Trouble is everything that we had was almost like you could say for all of it was just constant trial by fire. I mean, we by the time we were playing in front of, you know, 15,000 people, Stevie would just pull out something, you know, on stage and we go, huh, never heard this before. Okay, just jump in where you can. And all of a sudden we'd be doing something new. Hmm. That was really, people say, I can't believe y'all did stuff like that. I go, well, we always lived that way. I mean, we actually made records that way. We'd go into the studio. Sometimes he just, 
he just start playing something and we go, okay. And we just start playing that. We go, well, that sounds good. Let me put some lyrics to that. And we have a song. We played it like one time. <laughs> That's why some of the stuff sounds a little, you know, spontaneous, extremely spontaneous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Texas flood was probably our most rehearsed record because we've been playing the material for a couple of years and we played those songs like once or twice. And then end up those tapes ended up being come, becoming a record. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's pretty enchanting, really. It, it it really it really is. There's a certain level of of romance in that way of living because you're just kind of just trusting again. You're just playing. You're you're feeding off of each other. You're listening carefully. But you had really not played the blues. So what was it about? What was it about Stevie that he liked about your playing that that added to the to the band? What, what was it that? What was the? What was some of the ingredients? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know really what he liked about specifically about my playing, but I think there was something about me that he liked. I mean, he was, we all know how incredible he was as a player. He told me one time though, he said, he goes, you know, he goes, you have some things that I'd really like. He goes, I'd like to be more like that. He goes, and maybe I've got some things that I can give you too. Hmm. And he talked about a, uh, something that B.B. King had said one time that, you know, that, that people, they show up together and they have parts. And then when they put themselves together, they all become a hundred percent together. I think that was kind of a striving that there was something about me that he liked. Um, that just wasn't about just how I played drums. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, I look back now and I think that, you know, the things that we, that, that came our way and that we accomplished really depended on a lot of different aspects of what we all really did bring individually to the whole, the venture, that life together. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, the combination. When I heard the band, it was just so, so tight and so fresh and so spontaneous and just so much fun and so deep at the same time and, and philosophical, but yet a real whimsy kind of fun to it. It really was an incredible journey of hearing the music. Yeah, we did. That's kind of where we lived, like, all the time. I mean, there was very little that we put together and, like, would rehearse and clarify. And, you know, and it was just, we really, it was amazing how much we kind of flew by the seat of our pants, like, all the time. <laughs> yeah. So you're now, so now you're beginning to tour. It's starting to pick up. You're doing more clubs. You're doing more venues. What was that like when it started to grow a little bit more? Well, you know, the funny thing was we were just, we were kind of in this, this area where we were playing, we were scrounging for gigs. Yeah. And so we were in the clubs and I think, you know, there was a, several things that, that were, that were became of interest. One, our manager who was, who was Irish, Chesley Milliken from Dublin Island, Ireland was friends with the Rolling Stones. Um, he was friends with the Grateful Dead and an Englishman, Sam Cutler that, that worked with them. And he knew all of them from, from Great Britain. Hmm. And, Anyway, he sent a tape to Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger loved the band and was thinking about starting a record label and was thinking about signing us. But we went to New York and we did a, a, an actual gig, like a 30-minute gig, and the only audience members were Ron Wood and Mick Jagger. Unbelievable. It was the, it was this, the trio, yeah. Stevie and Tommy and myself. Yeah. And so that kind of got, uh, got a buzz going. Um, at the same time, not long after that, uh, Lou Ann Barton, who had previously been in the band, uh, was having a record release party. She got in a record deal, 
and she hired us to play her record release party of which Jerry Wexler came because he had actually had signed her and produced the record and he loved the band and he was the one that facilitated us going to Montreux, Switzerland, uh, which where we went and did this now kind of like famed show in our career where we got booed off the stage. But David Bowie was one of the audience members who came backstage and met us and, and offered Stevie the Let's Dance record and the Lance, Let's Dance tour. Um, and then the next, the second night that we were in Switzerland, we met Jackson Brown and he offered us the studio, which we made the tapes that became Texas Flood. And then we met, we met John Hammond, who fell in love with the band and he facilitated our signing at CBS Epic Records. So all these things happened like in about 14 months. So you're in Montreux, you're, you're playing this festival, you're meeting Bo, you're meeting Jackson Brown. Was there, were you guys making enough money to survive on at this particular point? Just barely. In fact, here was the, I mean, I, I was just talking with somebody about this just a while ago, was that we actually borrowed money from our management group to make the trip to Switzerland. And that trip cost us $14,000, you know, where we're beating around the clubs trying to keep our rent paid. And we get over there um, and we do the show and we get booed off the stage. And we're sitting there backstage thinking, I'm thinking, oh my God, I go, $14,000. I go, are we so sunk? I mean, how, how can we dig ourselves out of this deal? And then the knock came at the door. Like, it's like, yeah, yes. Hello. Uh, David Bowie would like to meet all of you. And we're like, and I, I remember saying, I go, which David Bowie? And they went, the, the David Bowie, Mr. David Bowie. He will, he'll be downstairs if you'd like to come join him in 10 or 15 minutes. And we walked down there and there's David Bowie sitting in a booth. So, we went and sat down and met him and just started talking about all these plans for the future. It was, and what, it was it, surreal. Yeah, I mean, you had to be pitching yourself at this time. You're sitting down, you're having these discussions. And what what, what was some of the plans? What what was the what was being discussed at that time? Oh, well, he said, he said, um, so I'm sitting there thinking that the moment, the moment that's so wild is that I'm thinking we're sunk, right? I mean, we got $14,000 in debt we're going to have to pay back and we make five, $600 a night. We're trying to keep our, you know, rent paid. And now there's this, we got boo. This is our big shot. And then we meet David Bowie. 10 minutes later, we're hanging out with him and he's saying, I'm going to do an R and B record in the fall. And he goes, I'd like y'all to be involved with this. He said, I'm going to do a worldwide tour that'll come after the record. I'd like all y'all to be involved with that. I'd like Stevie to play on the record. I want him to be in my band and all this. And we're like going, really? Are you kidding me? It's like somebody pinched me. Could this actually be true? Well, part of it was. It ended up being true. But it set the stage for, um, you know, the kickoff to our career, really. Record deal. You know, first record. Record came out, Texas Flood. And we're kind of on our way. Stevie did not go work with David Bowie, which became like a worldwide uh, news sensation. I mean, every, I mean, there were th literally thousands of journalists that wanted to know who is this skinny blues guitar playing nobody from Texas that quit David Bowie. And they were just intrigued by that. Texas Flood comes out and they go, we got to talk to this guy. We have to talk to them. We have to find out what happened and what's going on. And I mean, it was just, I mean, you couldn't actually buy that kind of publicity. Oh, absolutely. So did you finally pay that $14,000 back? Yes, we did. <laughs> We were able to start doing that. We did that more in short order. <laughs> <laughs> How absolutely fantastic. So now you're playing blues and this is like the 1980s, 
1983. Right. So this is the time where it was long-haired rock and roll, where that was there was a whole nother, you know, the, the, the glam bands of what they were going on. And here you are playing the blues. How the heck did that fit in? I think that, you know, I, when I came to Austin, it was right, at, right like months later, Clifford Anton opened this club down on 6th Street called Anton's, and he brought all these people in. Jimmy Reed and Buddy Guy and Luther Allison and uh, Eddie Taylor and, oh, my God, um, uh, Bobby Bland and B.B. King. And the list just went on, um, went, went on and on. And we, we were watching all this, and, and, and Stevie and his older brother, Jimmy, were playing. They were saying, hey, you know, we're blues guitar players. And so if you fast forward to being in the band and what we had, I was just all that world and, and finding out about all this stuff, which was really somewhat new to me to the depth that I was finding it was very, really intriguing to me. The whole culture, where did all this come from? It was just wonderful. And you keep digging, you keep finding all this just fabulous stuff and you could live there forever. And so we were, we were happy as, uh, particularly at by the point in time that it was uh, Tommy and Stevie and myself, we were just completely happy being us doing what we did together. And there was no, there really wasn't anything like, well, are we going to get a record deal? And could we have hit records and you know, what would come? We were just living like we were living and hope that, you know, we could actually pay the rent more consistently and, you know, uh, maybe buy different kinds of food if we wanted to and that sort of thing. So, uh, so, oh, so when that came out though, I mean, people say, well, you can't get a record deal. We actually, when we, when we made those tapes at Jackson Browns in California, I played it for some people and they go, you know, you guys are really good, but nobody wants to hear that, that old stuff anymore. You know, there's a flock of seagulls and psychedelic furs and talking heads. And, yeah. you know, the list just went on and all these bands that were like keyboard and vocal bass. And they go, nobody cares about like the, like the blues guitar and all that stuff anymore. A, a couple of people did and, and they were absolutely enchanted by it which really facilitated John Hammond was the guy. Yeah. John Hammond had a friend, Greg Geller, you know, at the label, he said, Greg, just sign these guys up because you will know you won't regret it. And Greg Geller. And I asked Greg about this. He said, Oh yeah, John called me. I said, whatever John thinks I'm doing. I mean, you know, John Hammond had, was responsible for Springsteen signing yeah. Bob Dylan. Yeah. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Yeah. And so uh, he did. And, you know, there were, we found out later there were bets in the label that, you know, we wouldn't sell more than ten or 15,000 records. And, you know, he gave us the deal and the record came out and it just exploded. And all of a sudden it was like this, like, wow, what's this new music? You know? <laughs> <laughs> this guitar and all this wild. It's like, and it seemed like an anomaly in the field of what was out, you know, in the, in the business at that point. Wait, how is this changing your playing? So now you're playing with Stevie. You guys are now starting to hit it. You're playing all the different styles. And how does this affect maybe even what Stevie wanted from you? Was were there discussions of how things were going to be played? No, I think you know we we you meet people, right? The benefit of those that, that have come before. I mean, I look at this in the wisdom and experience of those who have been places. You know, we were thinking in terms of like, well, how do we make ourselves fit into a two thousand, four thousand, six thousand person a room right capacity yeah, yeah. room instead of playing in a, a 200 seat club right and so there's ideas like how you make that how you fill how you fill an arena or ultimately a stadium with your sound and how you pre present yourself but otherwise we we never really changed anything about who we were 
you know, our constant thing was, is it real? Do we do it well together? Are we having any kind of issues that we need to examine? Anybody having a problem or, you know, how are we doing? And the rest of it, there really wasn't any like, well, now that we've reached this level, we need to start changing a bunch of stuff about us. We never changed anything. I mean, the change from record to record was really a, an evolution and a continuation of what we hoped was, was growth from our work together. Mm. And that was really all that, that simple. That was just like beef stew. Well, you, you stayed so true to yourself and to the music that there was such, when I heard the band, there was such an honesty with the band that just made everybody feel so comfortable and it pulled everybody in. But we were talking earlier about just tone and pocket. How did that all come about as far as how you how you fit into the pocket of what Stevie was looking for? Well, you know, the, 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 the great benefit that I had was the guy was an incredible player, a rhythmic player. If you look, if you thought about, you know, if you looked at a heart monitor, like in a hospital and you saw that you could see the heart monitor, no matter what he played, no matter, didn't matter what he was actually playing, you could actually feel that pulse all the way through the music. So the idea of grabbing onto that and supporting that, you know, after that, it was stuff like, well, do we have a composition that we like? And um, are there any things about the arrangement or how we're approaching it that, you know, that doesn't feel as good as we know it can? And that was the way we kind of looked at, at the music, um, you know, and to try to be real. I mean, to be real and go, you know what, we we came up with this song, but you know what, it's just not happening. So we need to lose it. It just didn't, it wasn't getting across to us. So was it, was there, was there, you know, were you evolving with your drumming and your music as you were going on with the band and having these different experiences? Was, did you feel that level of change happening within yourself? You know, I did off and on. I mean, the band, it's no secret that, you know, the band went through a, a period of, of substance problems and, yeah of which there was a big reckoning and there was a big thing of uh, into sobriety, a change into sobriety. So there was a lot of starts and stops with all that as far as the right. evolution and the health of it, um, which kind of makes the, the Stevie's uh, passing that, that, that much more poignant because the last four years or so, things have really changed and we had really gotten clear um, and all that stuff was really coming into like, like really major fruition with us about what we were seeing. And in fact, the night that he, that he, he died, he and I talked for about 40 minutes after the Alpine Valley show. And he was saying, man, I've got all these, he'd done this record with his brother family style that was just coming out. They were going to go do a little, some promo stuff uh, to support that record. And then he said, he goes, I've got a bunch of ideas. He goes, man, I hope everybody like, likes them. I said, but what, let's talk about them. And he said, strings and brass and he goes some real trippy stuff he goes i and also we were like this health had kind of come into our lives and it was like it was really exciting and inspiring uh, again right and energized and so i go oh this is going to be great you know we just had did these two nights with clapton that, and we'd been doing great shows that you know just previously we'd done the tour together us and jeff beck and tony hymas and terry bozio and that was a great experience and so all this stuff was coming together. And it was really, really getting exciting. And then it all ended. Well, if there's ever a movie that would be an incredible, exciting, you know, heart-wrenching story, it's this story. When you, how, when did you hear about his death? 
at uh, six thirty the next morning, after the mm-hmm. night I was just talking to him the night after the show. Who knows? I mean, literally, we were talking, and he was going to go to go to the bathroom, and he went down into the where all the tent area was because it was quite a big show, right? There were a lot of guests and whatnot. And he went down and he came back up with his bags. He said, I'm going to Chicago. He said, they've offered me, there's an, an empty seat. Somebody's staying behind. I'm going to go back to Chicago. Um, at any rate, he went and got on that, that, that aircraft. And just a few minutes later, it was, it was over. But I didn't find out about it till the next morning. Who notified you? Well, we got a call for all of us to uh, gather in the tour manager's room and I thought, well, this is weird. This is like 7, 7.15 in the morning. We're going, you know, I got the call saying, well, we need to get together and have a band meeting. And I went, well, this is weird. We've never done this. Yeah, yeah. And when we all got together, everybody was showing up. And the only person that wasn't there was Stevie. And I said, where's Stevie? And then the call came in. It was our, our manager and, and Eric's man, Eric Clapton's manager, saying, look, there was, there was an accident last night. One of the helicopters went down. Stevie was on it. And there was no survivors. And so that's when everybody found out about it. Well, that, that must have, I mean, with what you had been through up till now and, and, and all the changes and the great music, I mean, this must have been a complete change of life for you right now. This is a, this is, this is a complete, you know, left turn that you had to make. It was like, it was, it was devastatingly hysterical. It was. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, you don't believe something like that. You go, this can't be possible. And you go, no, this is, this is the other side of the coin of life that, you know, it can, it's a possibility and it did happen. Uh, no, it was completely, it was a major upheaval, complete displacement. Uh, my, you know, life entirely changed. Yeah. So you came out, you came out of this, this substance challenge that you guys had, you came out of this, you obviously had to work hard to get out of that. And all of a sudden this new, this new world opens up and and the writing changed, your playing changed. I mean, this is an incredible Phoenix rebirth of what really happened at that point. Yeah, absolutely. A lot a lot happened in five years that, mm. that was life changing for everybody. All, all for till the end of time. So if, if my first question is why isn't there a movie about this here? Because this is a message that is just so beautiful. Well, I, I can't really talk about that right now, but there there actually could be one in the future. Okay, good. <laughs> that's, good. Crypt, that's cryptic enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good. Well, we're always sitting on the edge of our seat for sure. And that going back to the recordings, was there anything on the recordings that you felt that now that you go back and listen to it, that maybe you would have played differently, or you would have not done that, or is anything like that? That, that oh, occurred? are you kidding? There's tons of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we would do. I mean, we go in and we like we take a song like something like say say what soul to soul on the uh, soul to soul record, and it was like hey, I got this thing. It's kind of like a Hendrix thing, but we'll start with some stops and then we'll just go through the progression and then we'll end. Okay, okay. And so we did it, and then we a little later we did it again. Anyway, we did it four or five times. I'm going, oh yeah, there's a couple of great takes. And Stevie goes, well, I like my guitar on this take. I go, really? I go. I don't really like the way I, I don't really like the way my way I played drums on that. And he'd say, "Well, I guess you shouldn't have played him that way." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was pretty he was pretty like hardcore like that. You know, yeah, I don't really like what I did on that song. He'd say, "Well, maybe you shouldn't have done it then." You know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, because there there's and I would actually say that in the, that 
that probably the majority of the tracks that are on our records that I have the other takes that I like what I did way better. I mean, whether it was the groove or, you know, literally what I played, it's nuanced, but I go, Oh, why can we use that track of mine? You know, where, you know, what you're choosing, you're trying to choose what's really becomes the best overall music. But well, how, how absolutely, it just, this is so interesting. So what happened now? You made the move to Memphis. Right at, at, around at that point, because that, that's when the instep album happened. When, you know, how did that all happen? Oh, well, we, you know, we actually went back to the power station where we had made for instep where we had made couldn't stand the weather. And right. there was just, I won't even list them. There was a, 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 a plethora of these wild problems that we had. So we bailed out in New York and we found uh, Memphis. We were working with Jim Gaines and right. he said, well, there's a great studio here. It's called Kiva. He later became House of Blues. And we just went and set up a shop there. And that's where we made the record. Only because he was living there. And he said, you know what? This is a really great place. And, you know, we can be real comfortable there. And it's not, it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And so that's why we went, went ahead and went to Memphis. So was that, that was around 1989. Is, is, that, is that kind of when you've kind of discovered Vader? Was was at that time where, where you know, before they were even you know, branded as sticks, you kind of found their product. Oh, yeah. You know what? Yeah. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> check it out. What do we got here? We got. Yeah. We got the whip, right? These are old sticks. I mean, I actually then played recording for a while. Um, I had these sticks. So, I, you know, it was a couple of days before we were going to start the record. And I went to Robert Hall's, you know, the Memphis drum shop. And I was like searching around and I actually got um, uh, Jim Pettit. He, they, they were partners on some drums. I was getting some black beauties from them. I wanted to try out their, their great uh, selection of black beauties, but I'm looking around the sticks and I saw this stick and I just looked at it and I went, you know what? I picked it up and I went, well, I go, um, that's great. <laughs> what is this? I'm looking at the stick and I, and I asked Robert, I said, Robert, I said, what stick is this? He goes, well, that's our stick. I went, what do you mean? It's your stick. I said, you made it. You make this stick. He went, well, no, we don't make it. He goes, um, there's our names on it. I go, well, who made this stick? I go, this is a really great feeling stick. He said, well, it's this company. They're called Vader. They're up in Massachusetts. He said, they're a, they make sticks for a lot of other people, but, they're getting ready. They're going retail here. And I said, how can I get a hold of them? So he gave me a, a contact and I just called Vader. I said, I love your drumsticks. I said, can I play, play on them? And uh, <laughs> so that's kind of how, that's, that's how it began. I just, I saw them and I felt them and they felt something like completely different than everybody else's drumstick. And I've been around ever since. It really is amazing out of the mind of Alan Vader and his family. It really is powerful that Alan, and his family had that kind of vision. And they were making sticks for everyone before they branded their own you know, brand of what they did. All of the companies had success because of Alan Vader's design and vision for quality. Absolutely. No, and I, you know what? I loved them. And I, when I, so I, I had them in my hand, and then I got them, and I played with them. And went, They're even better than I thought they'd be. <laughs> you know, because right in here, they would just kind of, they would beat in before they gave, you know, before they'd start splintering. And, yeah. and I didn't hardly break them. Or I mean, I'm not a hard player anyway, but um, I go, they just last like almost forever. Yeah, um, yeah. 
yeah. whatever, you know, so they had their thing and I went, yeah, um, now it was, um, I was, I was sold. <laughs> well, what's amazing is, is you're playing this kind of music. How do you develop, you know, there's a, there's an improvisational trust and ear that you have to develop in time to know how to play in the moment, which is really where you were all the time. You were always in the moment at that point, whatever happened, you reacted immediately. How do you develop that skill? Well, you know, it has to be that everybody will go there and everybody wants to do that. And so, you know, in Double Trouble, uh, we kind of had like a rule, which is that there's maybe no mistakes. If you do something, maybe that's an intro into something else, but to stay committed to the idea and try to make something out of it was what we tried to do. And if we actually failed, then we just failed. But it wasn't, it, there was no position of like drawing back. Right. We're just like CB said, he goes, I like to think that we'll always play that we'll play our music like we're breaking out of jail. He goes, we're just going for it all the time and that we don't get caught up in that kind of thing. We just keep going. And if it looks like you think you made a mistake, maybe you've actually come on to something brand new. And, you know, I, the, the recordings that we'd have of our shows, which are quite a few, we would discover that we somebody would do something and everybody would just pick up on it. And all of a sudden we thought we were playing, we were tossing a football instead. Now we were tossing a tennis ball around, you know, it's just like one thing kind of just turned into something else. Cause we just kept going. <laughs> you know, Miles Davis said in his book, there are no mistakes, only unexpected opportunity. There you go. I and guess that, I could have just said that. Right. <laughs> but that really is, that really is where you guys were living. You guys were living like that. Every performance. I mean, that is just such a, a a great place to live because you're not worrying about the rules. You're just worrying about what's happening at that moment and what you're reacting to. That's an incredible place to be at. You know what? That was another one of those things that when Stevie died, that was a, a real cherished thing that I realized was lost because there we really there was the only rule was to try to live in the moment and do it well together. Yeah, yeah. That was really, and that was really beautiful. That's really rare. You know, well, when, when when Steve, it really is rare. And right? when Stevie, you know, you know, passed away very untimely, you kind of stopped playing for a while, right? You kind of like removed yourself from the musical scene. What happened at that time? I, you know, I did. I went home and um, I thought, you know, I don't really. I didn't even feel like playing. And then I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Stephen Bruton. Who a lot of people know is a great songwriter and guitar player, musician. He played with Bonnie Ray, played with Chris Christopherson. Um, he lived here and he called me up one day and he said, um, he said, I'm doing a record. He goes, and you're going to play drums on it. He was producing a record, record producer. He said, I'm producing this record and you're going to play drums on it. I said, nah, I don't feel like playing. He said, he goes, I know you don't. He goes, you're probably sitting at home on the couch. I said, yeah, that's what I'm doing. He said, well, you're going to get your ass up off the couch and you're going to go get a drum kit and you're going to meet me at the studio and I'll give you two hours to get over there. I just, I went, okay. And I just got up and I went and did what I was told. <laughs> and, I, and I went and I did the record. And when I got done with the record, I went, you know what? I feel like playing again. It was like, that was so priceless that, you know, that somebody, him actually just said, you know, I'm pulling you out of this. If you can be pulled out of it, I'm going to make my, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot to pull you out of your funk. And so I was back at it. Um, you know, it wasn't really long after that uh, that we put together the Archangels, 
Right. Yeah, which which the band is just absolutely fantastic. You know, the Archangels should end up Kenny Wayne Shepherd, who I love, I love his playing. You know, that's a whole nother world, you know, buddy guy. I mean, you really started to get out and even some other stuff with with double trouble. You started to put together some some stuff together with that. Well, right, when Tommy and I, um, back in ninety-eight, we Tommy called me up and said, he goes, he said, I've written a song, he said, because I started playing acoustic guitar again. He said, you need to learn how to play guitar because I think we ought to make a record. This was his idea. I went, and I had a dream and I dreamt a song, the music of it. And I thought, well, and somehow I kept thinking about that. And I called a friend and got a guitar and, and learned a few chords, wrote that song. We made a record, which was our Double Trouble record, it was full of all guests and Dr. John and Willie Nelson and Jimmy Vaughn, Susan Tedeschi, Johnny Lane, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Um, Excuse me. Um, and so, yeah, that was a that was a real that was a three year long project that we did writing that material and, and putting that record together and getting that out there and then touring behind it. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. We have a question actually from uh, Ashlyn Shanafelt, who is a phenomenal drummer, and I want to bring that up right now. And she's got a question. Can you read that on your screen? I'm curious to know what your most memorable show was with SRV. Yeah, with Stevie Ray. What was your what was your most memorable show? You know, there's um Yeah, there was several I you know, I don't know about most. I'll tell you what, okay. Oneana, New York. Hmm. SUNY University. University, SUNY University, Oneata, upstate New York, yeah. Upstate New York, okay. We played a show there and something happened at that show where time seemed to cease it's really it's it's really probably the most like profound thing that's ever happened in my in my whole musical life where we were i remember we were playing it started when we were playing an up-tempo tune and it seemed like it was a week between every beat and it was like i looked down i thought i don't know who's playing drums but i'm kind of witnessing this going on and that time stood still and it was like you're not doing this but you are doing it and you can do no wrong and that we all were in this whole vibe that we just like went through this whole like a couple hours and then it just was over and we we're like wow what happened that was like indescribable so you know it wasn't like you know well because we played red rocks we played the lorelei madison square garden stadiums and all these different shows but that was one where i was like this is something so special about how this feels and it was really it was really literally like the time it, it stood still yeah that Ashlyn, thank you so much, man. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal player herself and a great, great musician. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for that question. Let's talk about the Hendrix Estate and you doing the Experience Hendrix Tour. What was that like to start to step into that world? Because I know you were a, a fan of Mitch Mitchell. Um, you know what? Really, he was like one of my biggest like drumming heroes when I was young. Yeah. And then I got to meet him and we worked together. I got a call, a cold call from John McDermott saying, hey, this is who I am and we're going to do this thing in San Diego and invite a bunch of different people and I'd like you to come. And so it was like this whole bums rush to San Diego. And they're like, everybody and their uncle were there. And it was like this, just two hours of like, I, I don't know, it was this wild deal. And when all the dust settled, he said, you know, I think we're going to do this some more. And I'd like you to play drums. And I've been, and I did that for 15 years. Uh, who knows? We might actually do it again, but, um, yeah, and that's been a great experience because I've gotten to play with all these different people, whether it was 
Buddy Guy, Zach Weil, Joe Sacriani, Caesar and David from Los Lobos, Brad Whitmer from Aerosmith, uh, mm -hmm. Keb Moe, Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. I mean, there's been like uh, Taj Mahal, all these different people that I've, that I've gotten to play with, and we've done all these great. Now that was from the Double Trouble uh, re, uh, record release show that we did. Jimmy Vaughn, uh, and that's been that was that's been a wonderful adventure. It's just fabulous what we do uh, on that tour. Yeah, you know when you're doing sessions now, is there any preparation that you go through in learning songs, or how, how do you prepare yourself for for learning some new stuff? Well, you know, if somebody sends me a file, depending on how we're going to do it, um, you know, I've got a vocabulary that's outside of like the blues realm. And, you know, like with the Hendrix thing, I actually went back and, and actually kind of gathered up a Mitch Mitchell vocabulary in case I needed to use it. Hmm. But so I have a lot of things that are kind of outside the pure view of like what people heard me do in Double Trouble or even in the Archangels. So I look at that and I go, well, I play through stuff and I go, okay, I've got the vibe now. What could I do to try to uh, make this better? And so, you know, I dip into my trick bag and see if, um, what I can do to put that together. And then, then, then go try to live in the moment when I go do the session. What, what would you say, what you have done so well in your career and what I witnessed, you have always been true to yourself. You've always been, this is who I am. This is what I feel my path is. How have you developed that ability to be able to be really true to yourself i'm you know i've always kind of been curmudging a kind of a curmudgingly type person in that way and it's there's some a lot of good to it and then some that's not so much that it's like i kind of only want to do what i like to do yeah. <laughs> so you know it's not it's not one trick pony it's not you know not the barty fife of drumming or something you know um it's just there's things that when I hear them, I go, I know how, how what I want to do when I when, when it comes up and I do it or I don't do it. With all the different changes in the music industry, I mean, listen, both of us at, at our stage in our lives right now have seen some massive changes. You know, where do you see the industry now compared to how it was? And you know, just, just from what you were able to experience where you were playing really pure music. Well, you know, it's funny. In one, in one hand, it seems like there's a lot more individual opportunity for, like, expansion. I'm talking about creatively. But it seems to be very uh, diluted, and it's been, in, in certain ways, economically devalued. Um, and then there's the whole aspect that it seems like mostly, for most people, it's, it's, it's a journeyman's uh, occupation. Not unlike a plumber or a, a framer, you know, a roofer. You get up every day and go do your work and you get your pay and you go home. Um, it's kind of like, like the penthouse or the basement, you know, in, in a lot of respects, because there's people that once they get to, uh, you know, they get to a certain echelon, you know, the money and the opportunity is just outlandish, so to speak. And, but most people are living kind of, it seems like in more of the middle uh, ground of where, you know, the days are like when I, when we got our record deal, um, you know, we sell records and we still sell records you actually sold records and you made royalties and you had intellectual property and merchandise and all these different streams of income that some of those have kind of really dried up into any kind of significant level for most people these days. I mean, there's more points of interest and more opportunity, but it's a little bit more minute, you know, and it's in what you get, I think. 
Well, that really is fantastic. I think we have a couple more questions here. Let's see if we can pull up a couple more questions here that uh, Chad Brandolini, who's running this, uh, producing the show back in here, says Quip. Funny enough, I was listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan in Double Trouble at the Cotton Bowl opening for The Who. It was killer. Any memories of that particular show, Chris? That, that was in 1989. Uh, you know what I remember? I remember that was a while because The Who, I was a huge Who fan. I'm like, wow, we're, we're here with The Who. It'd be Astrodome and the Cotton Bowl. And they wanted us to do these shows in Texas. And the stage was so big and the venue was just huge. I mean, the cotton, I mean, the, the Astrodome was like, you know, is this actually a room? I mean, it's like the world. You know, these places seem like worlds, not like rooms, right? Um, you know, breezes blowing. And I just remember it was really exciting and that we were just, you know, we go, we're going for it. You know, this is our state. You know, this is our home. That's Stevie's home, right? Yeah. And I remember it was just, we went out there like we were going for broke. <laughs> How amazing. How absolutely amazing. Let's try another question. One more question. From Cokeman, 13377331. I don't know if that's his uh, social security number or his telephone number. <laughs> Can you ask Chris if it's possible for him to see about getting more Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble shows that were recorded on film released out there? Are there any anything you think that are that are, you know, Tapes that were stuck in news stations or getting dusty. Is there anything that you think might be laying around? You know, there was, so going back to the Elma combo, which probably only saw the light of day because Stevie had passed away. Hmm. Um, there's a number of different shows and there are different domains, Australia, Japan. There's actually one in um, Passaic, New Jersey, and they're, they're actually in, in their entirety, but they have kind of been, uh, parsed out and broken up into individual selections and they've been bled out onto YouTube and other places. And I don't really know. Um, that's actually become more of the, uh, the domain of Jimmy Vaughn because he's the executor of the estate. Okay. And I don't know that we'll actually go back and try to gather those pieces up and try to do anything with them. But the way things have changed these days, that might've been something that could happen when we, when there was a real DVD market and yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. That's a good question because I know that I had this talk with John McDermott, who he does all this stuff for the Hendrix estate, the discovery and issuance, and you know aesthetic qualification. And he said there's he goes these I he goes I've actually found way more stuff on you guys than I ever have on Jimi Hendrix and the Experience or the Band of Gypsies combined. I went, I go yeah, there's actually a lot of stuff out there, but it's all kind of just laying around the landscape. I don't know that it'll ever be pulled together really. Well, that would be great to have that have that uh, track down in the course of time. I think we have one more question. Let's try one okay. more. Sesquip again. This was your change to a three-rack tom and setup around in-step due to any particular reason or just you just wanted to mix it up? I wanted to get a little bit more adventuresome. Uh, my, my deal with my drum suppliers, I would always ask for just a few more drums than I would typically play. And I like the idea of the three tom setup. Um, I just thought that would be kind of cool to try that. Boy, how incredible! You know, but you listen. You you you, you experimented. You tried different opportunities. Let's just go back to Vader for a second. So, with the uh, Powerhouse Five B, the Powerhouse, the Stretch Five A, and some Sugar Maple models, and eventually the Josh Freeze Eleven Two Twenty. Yes. Incredible feels. Each one's a little different in how they feel, for sure. 
what makes you change to all these different models? Uh, you know, I don't know. It, you know what? It, it's really a matter of not actually becoming disenchanted with a particular stick, but it's discovering another one. And I don't know if that's where you, I just, I said, call it and grow into that idea. Like when I picked up here, they are right. The yeah. H220s. Um, I think I was at Tommy's drum shop one day and I just stuck my hand in and felt them. And I went, you know, I, I like the way that, that stick feels. And I started using it, and I just have not stopped using it. I mean, there could come a day here at any point in time that I actually pick up another stick, and I, I like it more. And I don't think there's – it's not like a better, a better, and continually better stick. It's just a, a, it has to do with my preference as I go through my life. You know? Well, that's a, a, great, a great answer because I feel the same way. I like a variety of different – you know, I call them all different tools. I like different tools in my hand because when it feels differently – it brings something out of me that might be a little different that wasn't there before. Yeah, and, and like this this uh, H220, you know, commonly seen the Josh Fries model. I go, I'm good. I actually turned me on to him because I heard. I think I think heard. I think I've heard of this guy, and he's fabulous. And now yeah. I know quite a bit about him. But I go, I'm digging the stick, and, and if as long as I keep digging the stick, I'll keep playing that stick. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's not broke, don't fix it. It's not broke, don't fix it, man. That is a very, very deep philosophy. Chris, I must say, man, it is so great to have some time with you. And this has been fantastic. We've got tons of people that are listening right now. It's going out on Facebook and YouTube. This will go later on back on YouTube. So everyone that's listening, go back and listen to this again because, you know, I, I'm going to go back and watch this again. And I'm going to take notes, Chris. I'm going to really kind of – because uh, your answers have been so deep. You have been so honest. And you really have always been true to yourself as a person and as an artist and that really is a rare combination well thank you thomas i've really actually enjoyed this visit with you it's really been special for me thank Thank, you thanks so much well at some point we're going to hook up in the future no matter where we are whether i'm near you or you're near me we'll make that happen to everyone that's listening i thank you so much chris thank you so much stay well stay safe and hopefully i'll see you real soon thank you buddy later on fantastic what a fantastic person and you know when they say the kind of person you are is the kind of artist you are, boy, Chris is a great example of that. A great guy and a great artist. He really has found that combination in life that allows him to express himself for totally who he is. And, of course, all those recordings and even the newer stuff just allows him to shine as always. Thank you so much to everyone that's tuned in. Thank you to the Vader Company for allowing me to have this opportunity. We'll see you all next week. We're going to bring in some more people. You'll see it advertised on social media. Make sure you go to the Vader social media. Go to my social media on Instagram and, and Facebook. Watch all the stuff. You'll see what's happening. Stay tuned. Stay well. And thank you so much to all of you that, that are listening to us here. Stay well. Stay safe. Bye-bye.